This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab. Here is Igor with another episode. Enjoy. Good evening, Lab Rat. It's Igor again, to spout into your ear holes lovely lullabies of lasciviousness. Remember to check out the Murder Lab site for our merch, updates, and compromising pics of Queen V with a lab beaker named Tommy. Please like, subscribe, and share, 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 as we want our little pod baby to grow, just not as large as Tommy. He's kind of scary. This week's topic... As I'm interested in crimes around the turn of the century, or old-timey crimes, I was looking up this very title and came across several that I found that jumped out at me, and they are based on ritual murder, a poisoning syndicate, the killing that gave the father of forensic anthropology his break, a classic cutthroat tale, and a scandalous murder maid that was the most covered and discussed story in the 19th century England. So let us start off, shall we? The first one I'm going to start with is based on The Conitz Affair. It's based on a book that I was reading called The Butcher's Tale, Murder and Anti-Semitism in a German Town by Helmut Walser Smith. And he starts, How do we understand prejudice, hatred, and violence in the context of modern societies like our own, among people much like ourselves, among men and women who lived, not in dark times, but in an era when the balance of opinion was against the all-too-open expression of hatred. Now that statement's distressing to me because it's as timely today as it was in the late 1800s into that new millennium where our story begins. So this happened around the uh, 1900, and unfortunately you can just change the minority group or groups, but there are still riots, politicizing basic human rights, unnecessary, death and questions about how it is we haven't really changed after all we've been through and put one another through. So this first one, it's a rocky road and I'll try to focus on the mystery itself, but the parallels to our current societal situation is going to be obvious. It was March of 1900. Two friends found a package that had been sewn shut and wrapped in packing paper at the basin of a lake where the ice had melted. One of the pair got the parcel out of the water and they both opened it. My God, that is my son. Johannes Winter had found the torso of his 18-year-old Ernst Winter. A second sack was located that had the lower torso, which had been disemboweled with a buttocks and penis intact. Ernst had been missing since Sunday, 3-11. 3-15, March the 15th, the right arm was found in the Protestant cemetery with the left thigh being located five days later in the lake. The body parts did fit together, and the vomit traces matched his last meal. Ernst was tall, a swimmer, gymnast, dancer, and bicyclist known for being a bit of a cad, i.e. he like a dopus. He was the only son among four sisters and was raised as a Protestant. When he was 12, he entered the Konitz Gymnasium, a respected college prep school. He was known as a smart dresser and was a bit of a hottie, supposedly. It was believed he died in the late afternoon and early evening but this didn't jibe with the stomach contents that weren't digested much, putting the time of death at 4 p.m. Witnesses claimed to have seen him after this, however, as late as 6.30 that evening. 
The autopsy was completed by two local doctors who came to the conclusion that the time of death, or the cause of death, was due to his throat being cut, draining him of blood. Now, mind you, his head was still missing, along with the choice other body parts. Second, examination noted petechiae on the lung tissue, those, those little tiny specks, those dots, suggesting suffocation, along with a spine cut along the lumbar vertebrae that was deemed a precise incision. So the lumbar vertebrae is near the back, the low back. No sperm or other fluid evidence was found. So where we are right now, the police who have been unable to set the time of death don't know how the murder happened, no suspects or motives at this point, body parts vanished along with the possible crime scene along the lake contaminated from the people showing up. So pretty typical of that time frame, that time period. A investigating officer bemoaned, complete darkness still hovered over the deed. Well, the same could be said about cleaning the murder lab toilet, but we'll move on from there. A few weeks passed since young Ernst had, was discovered and suspicion crept in. Jewish ritual murder, which is not where I would go, but we're going to get into that now about why they went there. In a letter to the Prussian Minister of the Interior from the county official detailed the quote-unquote facts leading people to this belief. Bloodless body parts, murder prior to Easter, believable ear witnesses heard a scream not far from the synagogue at 7.30 that night, while others were said to have smelled a burning, foul stench coming from the same area an hour later. So thus began the nightly demonstrations. Teen boys insulting and threatening local Jews at a time and at times damaging shop property. They called hep hep, which apparently was an anti-Semitic term when they saw someone they assumed was Jewish. By the, time, by the end of March, the Konitz mayor issued a warning saying it was not okay that a group of people are being harassed due to an unsolved murder. Hello? But as the story spread, outsiders were also hopping on that bandwagon made of lies due to ignorance and fear. A Berlin paper ran a series of articles implying it was a ritual murder carried out by the Jewish townspeople, supported, in quotes, by various people stating they saw strangers in the area, a Jewish cantor leaving town without warning, or that a Jewish busher had sharpened his saw a few days prior to the murder. Because you can't do any of that, apparently. By April the 12th, which is Monday Thursday, if you know what that is, a photographer started selling pictures of Ernst, causing townspeople to all of a sudden remember seeing him with people of Jewish persuasion. So it all hit the fan on 4.15 when two kids found his head in a ditch. Due to the peeling skin and insects, ugh, the police could not say how long it had been there. On the cheek and crown of the head were pages of a Berlin newspaper dated 4.29 of 1896. This is 1900 along with a handkerchief torn into four pieces with the letter A. Let's get into why they went to ritual murder. So the history of the ritual murder conspiracy. This shit apparently goes back to the 12th century. Knight poet Siegfried Helbing, Helbling, I don't think you'll sue me, wrote, and every year it happens still, the Jews Christ's passion offer when a Christian boy they kill. Mm, news to me. The first documented allegation of ceremonial execution happened in 1150 when Thomas of Monmouth depicted the slaying of a young boy in Norwich, Norwich, England, 
said to be a symbolic crucifixion. The story was then passed on to the monks of Peterborough Abbey. The story goes that the Christian child was treated by the Jews the way Christ had been before Easter, followed by hanging him on a cross and burying the boy not to be found. But the monks then located him and gave him a Christian ceremony or burial. The addition of the sacrament of blood came about in 1236 in Germany. A miller and his wife attended Mass on Christmas Day. Their mill was burnt down along with their five sons. So then, apparently the Jews were accused of the act along with taking the blood of the victims and using it for religious purposes. Where they came to that? Mm, I guess, like I said, history somehow. Uh, 34 Jews were executed for this proposed crime. 34. Wow. The issue was brought before Emperor Frederick II. He consulted spiritual and secular authorities, but got nowhere. So he then met with a commission of converted Jews from the various parts of Europe. They denied that Jews used Christian blood, duh, and that blood of any kind polluted the Torah and Talmud forbid its consumption. The emperor acquitted Jewish people. Despite this, the blood libel spread as well as the violence. This lie followed them wherever they went resurfacing again in the 15th century around the time of the witch trials and the Spanish Inquisition. And of course, I can't help but think of Mel Brooks singing, The Inquisition, what's that sound? From History of the World, Part 1. Jewish Curiosities by Johann Jacob Schutt was a four-volume work in the 18th century of Jewish folklore, and it wrote of a woman who brought a saucer of blood to the cattle market, wanting to sell it to any Jews as human, and of parents who would go to the Jewish district looking for their lost kids. You know, uplifting gossip that damages irreparably. Back to the body. January 8th, Ernst Winner's clothes found in the forest with his pants on the 13th in the Masonic Lodge backyard and his black overcoat on the 15th, all having dried blood on them. Due to the blood being dried, it can no longer be stated that he died of a slit throat. A Berlin professor of forensic medicine reviewed and disagreed with the initial autopsy. He felt that the petechiae on the face and lungs pointed to suffocation and no blood gathered on the throat along the incision mark. Couldn't have been a slit throat, he apparently felt. All the cuts had happened post-mortem. Semen stains were found on his vest. Interesting. Jacket and pants. So the semen was on a vest, jacket, and pants near the zipper causing the conclusion he was attempting to have intercourse with his clothes on. Hmm. This is the town folks, this in the town folks mind pointed to a pedophile or sex worker. Cause you know, they're the same, not. It was referred to as peder, pederast or pederasty, which I say is pedernasty. Otto Platt's name was mentioned as a 34 eight-year-old said to enjoy the company of young boys and to have admired Ernst Winner as he spent a lot of time as Plath's house playing cards and trading stamps. So wondered if that's what the kids call it. Now keep in mind he was 18 years old Ernst so just keep that in mind. I'm not saying he wasn't into it or he wasn't to it. I don't know. Further the packaging paper Winner's torso was wrapped in came from Otto's tailor shop, but he had an alibi, no motive. A few other men were investigated, including a teacher at the girls' school and a cigar dealer, but to no avail. So, let's move on to the sex worker angle. 
According to a Prussian mem memorandum, Ernst Winner could have been murdered in the apartment of a prostitute because he evidently had sexual relations with such women and was often seen in the company of people of the working class. For shame, I say, for not inviting me. His friends also mentioned how Ernst would brag about his sexual exploits and confess to masturbating nightly, which was thought to be unnatural. Thusly, the activity weakened him, allowing him to be overtaken by the murderer. Wow. Not the hairy palms, but anyway. This led police to Wil Wilhelmine Kamarov, a sex worker who Ernst had been previously linked with, and her boyfriend, Robert Zindler, as the murderer. Zindler had previously been a suspect in a murder where the body was also found along the same lake, so incriminating. Kamarov was sentenced to two years for perjury, and you're going to see that a lot in this case. Perjury is a big thing, not much else. So she was sentenced to two years for perjury during the trial for denying she was a sex worker, but she had an alibi for the time of the murder, so it couldn't go farther than that. The sex for hire theory took a hit when it was discovered Ernst left his wallet at home. I don't know if they were going to pay him or I don't know. It was still light outside and it was said the gymnasium students get theirs after dark. It makes me think of like the gymnasium after dark. Like the peach pit after dark for all the 90210 geeks out there. The focus shifted to the underworld because that's where hardworking people are apparently and they were seen as anti-religious unreliable promiscuous and often criminal check check and check it was bolstered by the claim of witness saying ernst was seen along with two unknown men it was only after a reward was offered did people start remembering things a beer distributor said he saw ernst meeting with johann gast and august pekarski there's going to be a lot of names thrown out. I tried to keep it to a minimum, but most of these people go away. I'll focus on the big ones and I'll let you know. Johann Gast was known to be violent and August, his friend that was supposedly with him, said as much along with his supposed baby mama. So Gast had a woman he had a child with, which was a big no-no back then. Despite this, police could not place Gast with Ernst, so no connection there. They then decided to look at a group they had not thought could be this brutal. The German middle class. Dum-bum-dum. They did track down the handkerchief's owner, and she said she didn't think to report it because the Jews did it. How it got plates by Ernst's head was never determined, and she was never seriously looked at because she was a member of the upper class. A friend of Otto Plath's, Weichel, which was who was a teacher, was said to have been with Otto and fallen ill around the time of the murder and asked to be walked home. After the slaying, Weichel began to act odd. The morning the torso was found, he went to Berlin to be seen about a sore larynx, but nothing was found. Upon returning to Konitz, he started inserting himself in an investigation bothering the police, which we know historically is a big sign. They could be involved, they could just be a little crazy, but you gotta look into it either way. On May 29th, Weichel got drunk and boasted he killed Ernst Winner. There you go. That a boy. Then he tried to wrestle a revolver for someone to take his life. Looking into Weichel proved to be fruitful. At 16 years old, he had seen the dismembered body of a supposed ritual murder of a 14-year-old. Plot twist, but not really. He later worked in a military hospital learning about anatomy, but his alibi checked out. 
So like I promised, I'm going to have you meet the major players here, which are Gustav Hoffman, Adolf and his son Moritz Louis, and Bernard Masluff. Adolf Louis was a butcher that happened to be Jewish, and the townspeople started to suspect him as the killer, and then the threats began, unfortunately. He was described as a timid and anxious shadow of a man, so guess they didn't trust him. Um, the eldest son, Moritz, had gone to school with Ernst. So we have Adolf, Louis, butcher, Jewish butcher, Moritz, his son, supposedly knew Ernst. The third person is Gustav Hoffman. He was a Christian butcher. Do you link your own meat? That's from Sorry, Mirrodin Axe Murder. I can't do the good accent or whatever. With a 15-year-old daughter, Gustav had, named Anna. So Jewish butcher and a son that knew Ernst. Gustav Hoffman, Christian butcher. The police inspector surmised that Ernst may have tried to do the Jim Jam with Anna, and Daddy Gustav found out and killed him dead. Carving up the corpse as only a trained butcher could, then disposing of it piece by piece. Or step by step if you're into new kids on the block. Daddy G also had an airtight alibi that was corroborated by his Sunday dinner guests that apparently was followed by communion. Later that night, his two apprentices got home, and then all members of the household were in bed by nine. When Hoffman, the Christian butcher, was taken in for questioning, a citizen's committee got its own witness in the form of Bernard Masliff. He told them that on the night of the murder, he was laying in the alley behind Louis's house about to steal some meat. So apparently there wasn't an Arby's nearby because, you know, they have the meat. And then when he was laying there, he saw Louis and two other dudes walk into the lake carrying a heavy package, alluding, of course, to the fact that it was Ernst's torso. Hoffman, the Christian butcher, gets taken in, says, oh, but I've got something much better than me. Talk to this dude. So Bernard Masloff says, this is what happened. People started showing up after 10 p.m. that same night after rumors circulated that Hoffman was going to be arrested at 1 a.m. The crowd swelled to a thousand people, causing some to try and break into Louis's home, so the Jewish butcher's home, and then they just generally started rioting. So again, unfortunately, does this remind you about anything about last year? The Prussian army was called, and they brought 150 soldiers. The response was the rumor to the crowd was now heading to get the mayor, who had been protective of the Jewish locals. They go after who they thought or wanted to believe was the murderer or involved, and then on to the mayor because he wasn't doing what they wanted. The riot was dispersed, but another wave of violence took hold when Inspector Braun arrested Bernard Masluff and his mother-in-law, Anna Ross, charging them with, of course, perjury. Over the course of several days, Louis' home was damaged, sheds were burnt, and the synagogue was looted and vandalized, causing a battalion of 650 soldiers to be sent. Hoffman wasn't quiet during this time. He went on to be quoted in the news, and there were five, there were 50,000 copies of a pamphlet that he wrote that he had printed 12 arguments showing Louis was guilty of the murder of Ernst Winner. And you'll notice, don't, you don't hear anything about the Louis coming out and saying anything in their defense. They're just trying to survive. One of these was 28-year-old Moritz, who we said was friends with Ernst, and he said that Moritz, knowing what a sex fiend that Ernst was apparently, lured him behind a shed where his family was lying in wait. So 
Moritz says, hey, come with me, dude. We're friends. Remember that? Let's get some. And then the Louis family was there wedding. Ha ha. We're going to kill us a Christian. For his part, Moritz denied even knowing Ernst. Ernst's two best friends never recalled seeing Moritz around or Ernst speaking of him. So that's a big indicator there that was ignored. Moritz was arrested based on the witnesses stating otherwise he was seen with them in October of 1900. But it was for, of course, perjury. His trial wasn't held until February of 1901. And there were 30 people there ready to place him with a victim. And to this fact, it was no shock to this Igor that Moritz was found guilty, sentenced to four years, and the loss of his citizenship, which I have not read anywhere else. I don't know how he can lose that, but apparently they could do that then. His family promptly relocated to Berlin, so he gets in the Huskau, the rest of the Louis family leaves to protect themselves. The Maslov-Ross trial ended up with the witnesses implicating the Jews, but the jury still found them guilty. To the great comfort of me, uh, Maslov got a year and Anna two and a half, but again it was for non-murder related, nothing to be indicted related to the murder or um, abduction of Ernst. Adolf Louis' son Moritz Louis served two years until being pardoned by Wilhelm II in 1903. What of Hoffman, you ask? Shut up. That smelly chode appears to have gotten away with it, with all the slander and general assholiness of the assistance with the assistance of others. So I'm not happy about that, but they didn't say anything more about him. So the theory that Inspector Braun put out there, he suspected that the killer to be one Bernard Masloff. He felt that he heard his own alibi by saying he was home at seven the murder night actually had been in town at 4 p.m. having coffee with Anna Ross, his mother-in-law, at her apartment, which is situated across the street from the home of the home Edgar was renting. They both knew him. Bernard's wife, Martha, was pissed at Bernard for being late. And as our illustrious author, Helmut Walzer-Smith, states, if one follows the corrected testimonies of Masloff and Ross, there was a window of opportunity to commit the crime sometime after 5.30 p.m. on Sunday. Braun postulates that Ernst went to the apartment knowing that Martha was angry and horny. Where Bernard and his mother-in-law returned, unanticipated by the two, finding them together. Dude hits him, suffocates, and then dismembers Ernst's body. The newspaper found on poor Ernst's head was linked to Masloff when it was found that only 12 people in the town subscribed to it, one of them being a farmer Masloff had worked for. The fact he worked on a farm also lends to the linking, the thinking Masloff knew how to make the cuts by working with slaughtering animals. Since trained butchers normally cut the intestinal cord completely out, and Ernst had 10 centimeters still attached, Masloff killed sheep in the course of his farmhand duties. Braun also pointed to the odd activities of Masloff and his wife. And I don't mean they weave baskets out of meat, but Anna was said to have been sick that Monday. The Tuesday after Edgar's death, Anna and Martha strolled through the village to get meat, taking their baby carriage with them to carry back the booty of animal flesh. The way there was past the Jewish cemetery, the shooting club, and the farm where the head of Ernst was buried. 
On Wednesday, Maslov and his wife went on a carriage walk with their baby, then ventured back into town. They were going to spend the night with Anna Ross, his mother-in-law. This path took them past the location of where Ernst's left arm was found. So I guess the thinking here is that they would have been depositing body parts as they went? Didn't really say, but they were at those points where they were just walking. In summary of the book, frustratingly, there's no indictment of murder ever. And I even checked more recent. This, this book is like the definitive end-all be-all. Nothing else about the murder indictment. Good old Helmet puts it best. Indeterminacy is the historian's lot. So ends tale one. Well, that was a heavy one, wasn't it? Let us move on to our next one. That's not quite as heavy, but again, we are talking about moiter and death. So, goes to the territory, unfortunately. Next one, I call The Poisonous Ladies of Liverpool. Initially, I went to the book The Black Widows of Liverpool by Aspen Black, because her name rocks. However, it didn't end up being what I thought it would be. What I liked about it initially in doing the research was that there is a web or a syndicate of murder that was in this era. They were actually investing in death, so I like to call them the Poison Mafia. However, she gives absolutely no evidence as the entire book is only 50 pages. So I'm very thankful that I got it free on Kindle Unlimited. So I had to order the book, The Black Widows of Liverpool, A Chilling Account of Cold Blood and Murder in the Victorian City by Angela Braben to actually find anything out. Very good book, a lot of documentation, a lot of research on her end, had a lot of the censuses from that time so it was a lot to get through but very thorough so before we get into digging into our book of the actual research let's set the time place and how this whole syndicate may could have happened according to sciencedirect.com funeral insurance is an example of a practice that has evolved from the grassroots burial clubs that developed from the 18th century as a response in response to the social anxiety wrought by the threat of a pauper's funeral. They made these funeral benefits because they were just so afraid that their loved ones or themselves would end up being um, dug up by gravediggers because that was big then. According to the History House UK, burial clubs were to be found in 19th century Britain. This was a time of high death rates, especially among children, and the poor working-class families were fearful they would be unable to pay for a decent funeral, and they'd have to rely on the local poor union to provide a pauper's funeral. Basically, it's buried in a common pauper's grave without a headstone. And then, of course, like I said, mentioned about the end up in an anatomy school's dissecting table because of the Anatomy Act of 1832. So to assist everyone, those families, churches, trade unions, and other associations formed these benefit societies that were the burial clubs. The scheme was that the weekly payments to the club would ensure the funeral expenses of the burial would be paid for, regardless of how long the person had been a member. And that's important to remember. The amount to be paid depended on the type of funeral desired and the age of the person. So you could take it out one month, a few months later, if the person goes, you could cash it in. Now, you wouldn't get the full amount, as we'll see, but you would get something. 
the club would then collect the money from the members at their homes or a weekly collection site and day. Usually it was it started at a public house, but then they found out that they would spend the money on beer instead of the funeral, so they uh, changed it up there. They also had societies that would pay out for sickness. And there obviously around this time was some suggestion the system was abused. It was reported in an investigation of the time that some people, aware that a child was unwell and unlikely to survive long, would enroll them in two or three clubs. And on the death of, each of the child, each club would pay out, and they weren't aware of the others. One man was even said to have put his child in 19 clubs. When visiting a slum area, one clergyman's wife did not hear remarks of sympathy about a child's death, but was shocked to hear comments from the neighbors that it's a fine thing for her mother. The child's in two clubs. Now, some of this is speculation. As we see, not there's a lot of evidence, but there was a lot of suspicion and for outright murder or neglect of a child so that it died and they could collect. Many investigations were held, but these allegations may have been more the idea of an over-excitable over newspaper reporters and the concerned middle class rather than based on evidence. But there were obviously things going on. The societies, which could contain as many as 5,000 people, were not subject to any local or government supervision, and many collapsed as a result of financial mismanagement and theft. There also around this time of the barrel clubs were church and societies that operated boot clubs, clothing clubs, and coal clubs. So the intent was good, but unfortunately things can go bad because people tend to suck. Shifting back to Braben's, the Black Widows of Liverpool, it was noticed the high rate of poisoning deaths in the 1840s when poverty was at its greatest point, resulting in the legislative acts in the 1850s, such as the Arsenic Act, Arsenic Act of 1851, this was passed to prevent the unintentional consumption of arsenic by requiring producers to color their arsenic, as well as maintaining a written and signed record of those to whom they had sold it to, including the quantity and its stated purpose. That's from, that little blurb was from a small dose of toxicology. Braben states, women found they could make over and above the cost of a funeral if they enrolled sickly candidates, but this was looked upon as lowly and dishonest and a despicable way of earning coppers, not police peoples, rather than the high return investment that it clearly was. So it wasn't recognized, they didn't really look into it, and as we'll see, the doctors of the day didn't have the capabilities and science behind them to know the difference, or they were just so overwhelmed that they didn't look into things. Our story takes place in the late 1880s in the same climate, focusing on the slums of Liverpool and specifically two sisters, Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins. Catherine was the oldest, which is a very strong name, moving with her family and lodgers throughout North Liverpool. The 1881 census has her listed as a licensed broker, widow and head of her household on Blynham Street when she was 52. I'm going to mention a lot of names, and you know, I... I Sometimes it's inevitable, I have to, but I'll try to keep these to a minimum, and I try to focus on the main people because it makes your eyes cross. Mine too. So the family members that were with her are 19-year-old son Patrick, 10-year-old daughter Ellen, Catherine's younger sister Margaret or May Thompson, 38, the lodgers Patrick Jennings, age 45, with his daughter Margaret, 15, Peter Flanagan, 35, he was not related, and Henry Rimmer, 18 years old. Catherine was illiterate and said to be the more dominant sister, 
having good business sense, and she was known as a money lender. And this position allowed her to wear silk dresses, golden rings, and earrings. Fancy! Margaret Higgins had the last name Thompson on the 1881 census and was living with her sister, Catherine, and was listed as a charwoman. Not sure if she just barbecues a lot. I guess I could have looked that up, but I didn't, so... (laughs) Margaret was married to Joseph Thompson and was then widowed after an unknown period of time. So she went from Joseph Thompson to Thomas Higgins, where she got her last name, who then died, Thomas, after 11 months of marriage, causing whispers. I like to whisper, too. That's from Elf. She is portrayed as a follower to her elder sister and often referred to as being in the shadow of Catherine. Many are in the shadow of Catherine. Can I get a what? So the book placed these, these victims into three groups. There's the victims that are mentioned in the trial, the six deaths that were investigated by police, and seven additional deaths that caused the locals' tongues to wag. I'm going to mention the first... And then if we need to get into the second and third, we will, but I'm trying to avoid that. There's just a lot of various people. And so the four victims mentioned on the trial, Thomas Higgins, 1883, was his passing, age 36. Mary Higgins, 1882, age 10. Margaret Jennings, 1883, age 18. John Flanagan, 1880, age 22. The timeline of those deaths we mentioned... So Thomas Higgins' wife died a short time after he moved in with his sisters. The widow Margaret then got hitched to the newly single Thomas in 1892. October of 1883, he dies after moving into a cellar apartment alone with Margaret for 10 days. He died after his daughter Mary and Margaret Jennings, and and he even denied having his life insurance policy increased. So I'm not blaming the victim, but good God. He had some warning signs, but who would really think about that, you know? He was seen by neighbor Catherine Manville scratching at the wall in pain after being told by Catherine he is very bad with the diarrhea. Wowza. Now, we've all had some, you know, green apple splatters, but scratching at the damn walls? She witnessed his sister-in-law, Catherine Flanagan, put something into his water with a spoon, then throws out the rest of what was on the spoon when uh, she says he's do- when he says that he's done. So, here, take this. This will make you feel better. It won't kill you or nothing. And then um, tosses it, and we're not sure what it was. But, yes, we kind of do. Manville was then told by Margaret Higgins her sister had run off after Thomas died, and he had no funeral, and she didn't give a reason why, but... Margaret says, I suppose she is drinking. So the whole reason for this club is to have a funeral. So red flag. It was relayed by Manville that prior to his passing, when asked if he had life insurance, Catherine Flanagan stated she had him in a club and would give the proceeds to her sister to pay for the funeral. Catherine's spouse, John Flanagan, died July 24th of 1879 at 42 years old of quote-unquote plural pneumonia, 14 days. So these poor people suffer so long. I just, so horrible. They're just a bunch of ass melons. 1882. Margaret had Catherine along with her when she took out 15 pounds funeral benefit with a Scottish legal insurance when they had been married less than two months. She also took from, took one from the British Workmen's Association for 12 guineas 
on him, which paid out 12 pounds, nine shillings and six pence. 1883, Prudential Assurance Company was 15 pounds, two shillings, netting seven pounds, 11 shillings and six pence. By the time of his death, they only got seven pounds, 17 shillings and six pence since he expired before the 12 months lapse and they were only entitled to half of the benefit. So like I said, no matter how long you have it, you get something, which is meant to be great unless you bump into monsters. The insurance rep realized later he had given the payout to Catherine, who was posing as her sister, the widow. So these two were always doing stuff, but it seems to me that Catherine kind of is overseeing this. She says differently, shock. Per life insurance, in March of 1883, they took out 40 pounds. That totaled 108 pounds, four shillings, for a laborer making 15 shillings a week. It was only due to Thomas's brother Patrick looking into the burial clubs and insurance companies that caused the coroner to take a look at his body and found arsenic poisoning. And you'll see that over and over, and maybe you remember hearing that in other tales, is that they just, it looks like something else, like this horrible diarrhea. Yeah. Looks like pleurisy or uh, pneumonia, and it's not. It's arsenic. How did they kill? They dipped flypaper in water so the arsenic loosened and fell into the liquid, making it lethal. There was even arsenic and wallpaper, but this was alluded to and not mentioned as much. So it was just how they were always saying how easy it is to use a flypaper. But yes, ar arsenic was in wallpaper as well. That's why people would kind of get high when laying around in the room. So I heard. I wouldn't do anything like that. Now, the syndicate that was being referenced to, in the chapter titled Collusion and Blind Eyes, Braben addresses the probability of sinister aspects of events related to fellow lady neighbors. And lady neighbors sounds like a Midwestern folk band to me or the name of a one-woman play that I'm not doing. Braben also goes into how she feels the physicians and insurance companies were also responsible for this, allowing it to continue, and that's completely understandable. In Catherine Flanagan's statement given to her attorney, she says she was aided by Margaret Evans, a fish woman living on Blynham Street. Not sure which part of her is a fish, but I'm thinking, like, she's not a mermaid. Catherine says she killed a girl with flypaper water, which sounds like a new hipster drink. According to Catherine, her sister Margaret had lived with Evans and assisted in the murder. She then goes on to implicate the mermaid Evans, that fish woman, charwoman and another death of a man after Catherine provided her poison of a light color. So Catherine's always in and around this, but she, of course, is saying that, oh, it's not completely me. I just didn't say no. She also states Evans killed Catherine O'Brien soon after and that they both had insurance on her life. Catherine says her sister Margaret took care of Mary O'Donnelly, Catherine's own son John, and her daughter-in-law Mary Flanagan. She said she got some money after his death. Then there was Mary Higgins, Margaret Jennings, and Thomas Higgins, though she knew what was going on and would only represent the family at the insurance collection. So she would show up, just like she did pretending to be her sister, and say, hmm, I'm here as their representative, give me that money, and then split it or whatever the situation was. Mrs. Begley, a former associate of hers with coverage on Ellen or Elizabeth Godfrey, was stated by Catherine to have caused her death in coordination with Margaret. So Catherine knew about it, but let Margaret and Mrs. Mrs. Begley take these people out. Catherine offered to testify against her sister, how nice, if offered clemency, but this was denied by the prosecuting solicitor. 
I love that word. As he felt it would be difficult to prove anyone besides the Sus sisters were involved. So all this hearsay, a lot of finger pointing, not a lot of hard evidence. The author says, when we look at the census records, it's notable that the same witnesses and suspects are relocated in the same areas and were living together at different points, suggesting there was probable aid in the acts. Talking about the census, she mentioned certain streets. They always lived within these certain streets, a certain area, and it always seemed to be they passed this lodge or that lodge or this family member or that family member, always in the different areas. So they seem to keep that connection, and they're saying that's because she's saying because it's possible they'd had this syndicate. At this point in the text, Braben delves into each woman mentioned to see if they may have been involved or not, and the outcome is... She only feels Margaret Evans was deeply involved and should have been prosecuted along with the sisters. So all the other people I didn't mention, kind of alluded to in my notes, she's saying, no, I don't really feel like they were involved as much as Margaret Evans was with Catherine and her sister. In the end here, I was a little disappointed. The book wasn't written in the vein of proving the syndicate of helpers, but the result, I guess, by the author would have been the same because it's the same research, right? There was a lot of research and references and documents. She just arranged it in a way I found confusing at times, but I know I say that a lot because I'm reading and going through and gathering things and putting it in a certain way or looking for certain things, and people just don't write like I think, and that's annoying. This does, however, bring to the forefront a time when women banded together to make a life despite not having many options, and tragically, they chose to live off the demise of others. After that second downer, it's dad joke time. This one is for Queen V and all the drummers out there. A famous killer made a music video of all his murders, but the drum track was lost and unable to be duplicated. I can't believe he killed all of those people without any repercussion. But um bum Speaking of HGTV, if I ever kill anyone, I'ma dispose of the body by throwing it into a bottomless pit. It's a floorless plan. So we're gonna move on to our next, it's the Gouffet case. And I got a lot of this from the lineup, Wikipedia, Victorian Paris, and Universal Class. July 1889, it was France. Bailiff Toussaint Augustin Gouffet goes missing. July 29th, his brother-in-law reports him as being gone. Gouffet had kept a study at 148 Montremar in Paris. He was described as a respectable widow, properly raising his two daughters, but also said to be a skirt chaser extraordinaire, which I find very interesting. As the investigation revealed that during the month before his death, he slept with 20 women. He also liked a depouse. Due to this occurring during the Paris World Exposition, it didn't cause the sensation it normally would because three weeks later, his body was found 300 miles away. Now that whole World Exposition situation reminds me of H.H. Holmes and how he was the Chicago World's Fair and a lot of people, there were so many people there, a lot of families didn't know that their loved ones were missing because it took so long to get communication out anyway. The inquiry captured the attention of the French press for much of the year, and its impact was felt through the rest of the 19th century. Never was there a murder case where a, sus uh, where a suspect in custody was cheered by the crowd, thrown flowers, blown kisses, exchanged handshakes with officials and reporters, traveled first class, displayed elegant gowns, and enjoyed gourmet food. 
The four foot eight waif Gabrielle Bompard, 21, did all that after having admitted that she was indeed somewhat guilty of murder. Now, her partner in crime, Irad, was in his 50s, married, a lifer in the art of thievery, and a former army deserter that was only allowed back into France from hiding out in America when amnesty was offered. Bompard had been released within a year from a corrective institute she was placed in by her father. So they didn't have a great relationship and she didn't have a great uh, childhood, unfortunately. 1880 forensics. It's important for us to know here where we were with forensics to see how far this case brought it forward. Fingerprinting was gaining traction. 1882, first legal recognition of the technique. 1863, a German scientist discovered the first test for blood on objects. 1879, another German noted the differences in characteristics of hair. Important findings, but just at the baby step portion. So to the crime. They found the body with a black bag over its head near an abandoned trunk that reeked of decay. A road worker followed the smell, gross, to a bag hidden in the brush. The body was nude, bound in rope, and said bag over the heed. Two days later, a trunk was found with the same lovely smell the bag had, causing peeps to link the two together. That in the shipping label said Paris, and that it was near where the body turned up. The trunk was found by a trader of snails. It has nothing to do with anything other than I thought that was interesting and funny. An initial autopsy was completed by Paul Bernard, a forensic surgeon, and he determined the dude had been strangled three to four weeks previous. The coroner, however, didn't find the body to be that of Gouffet, as he was older in the body of a 35 to 45-year-old, and Gouffet was 49. Different hair color, and a family member did not ID him as the relative. Due to this, the body was placed in a pauper's grave. Too bad they didn't have funeral insurance. Months later, keep that in mind, months later, the chief of the Paris investigative unit demanded the body be exhumed. Ugh. The coroner didn't agree at first, but it had been four months at this point, and it was thought nothing else could be turned up to ID the Baudet. Dr. Alexandre Lickason, and I did write Lickason, entered the scene. He was a famed criminologist and a leader in the emerging field of forensics. Three weeks later, he performed his review of the body on November 13th of 1889. He did a week-long autopsy, and he concluded it was Gouffet due to a hair sample and a back injury he found that was described in the missing persons report. Dr. Licasse's work was a major breakthrough in forensics, being used as a case study for students, and his methods continue today. From 1889 till 2021, that's amazing. Really think of that. That's why I was kind of probing and looking at, you know, where was it? How is that so amazing? He put that all together, and they still use his work. Police then began searching Gouffet's activities prior to his disappearance, found that he had been talking with two swindlers, Mikhail Irod and his mistress, Gabrielle Bompard. The investigation led to them finding out that they had both left Paris two days before Gouffet had been reported missing, and Bompard had met Gouffet, 726, in a cafe where she invited him to visit her apartment scandalous. The trunk was traced back to the previous owner who told the authorities he sold it to the pair. The plan was to lure the Vic to Bompard's apartment and do the deed. Murder, not sex. 
While he was sitting down, she flirted with him and somehow wound a dressing gown cord around his neck. I'm guessing alcohol was involved. Irad was hiding behind a curtain, pulled the cord, but Gouffet fought for his life. And this motion caused Gouffet to be strangled. After the murder, the couple bagged the body and placed it in the luggage, where the tragedy twin shipped the luggage to Lion and discarded the body in the woods. Then they be caught. During the interrogation, the blame game started with Irad saying Bompard was at fault and she was the actual killer, as it goes. It was revealed that this devilish duo had hatched a plan to kill a rich man and Gouffet fit the criteria. Pair didn't make any money from the killing, what idiots. And, of course, they discarded the body. They had to get rid of it after picking it up in Lion, but had to chuck it in Millery when the stench got the better of them. Bumper declared that Irad forced her into the act via hypnosis. Ugh. The poisonous pair then fled to the U.S. Bumper then left Irad in San Francisco, going back to France, where she was arrested in January 1890. Irad stayed in the States, committing frauds in Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, but was found and apprehended in June of 1890. They were placed on trial December 1890, and both were found guilty. Now, the big difference, Irad was guillotined February of 1891, and Bompard was sentenced to 20 years of hard labor, which sounds like you're having a lot of babies with no Demerol, but I don't think it is. But she got out early for the proverbial good behavior. Bompard continued her pre-murder occupation of dance post-prison, and the public apparently felt sorry for her, having been literally hypnotized by her former partner. Apparently back then there was a big belief and focus on hypno hypnosis where they really thought that it was real. <laughs> so they felt bad for her being this poor young woman, hard life, and taken in by this married man. And although her life had been hard and she was there, he was the bad guy and he had disillusioned her or did this Vengali with her and she died in the 1920s, ending the saga of the bloody trunk. Now we move on to our next story, Milsom and Fowler. I took a lot of this from Wikipedia. Albert Milsom and Henry Fowler murdered Henry Smith, a 79-year-old wealthy retired engineer, on February 14th, boo, 1896, at his house in Muswell Hill, London. This case was seen as a classic cutthroat case, meaning where one of the killers puts forth a defense and the other was guilty, and in doing so, they only convince the jury that both parties are equally guilty of the killing. Our elderly fatality lived in a large home called Muswell Lodge in this wealthy part of London. Mr. Smith kept to himself and was rumored to have large sums of money hoarded away in his home, which of course we all know makes people want to steer clear and not want any of his said monies. He had a daytime gardener named Charles Weber. Apparently he let the last the night one go and had his only source of protection basically booby trapping his property via trap guns as this was before ADT. But apparently he probably should have kept his nighttime gardener and used him for this purpose, but I digress. Smith's gardener came upon his body the morning of Valentine's Day, and he sounded the alarm to the neighbors, the police, and a doctor, and a partridge in a pear tree. Smith had been bound with bank blankets and beaten in the head, and two pocket knives and a toy lantern were next to him. 
His safe had been broken into and his bedroom in disarray. The day prior to the killing, two men had been seen around the home, but the police were unable to locate them using the toy lantern as the only clue. Hundreds of the toy were made, so it proved to be of little use. Enter Detective William Burrell, who had noticed that known burglar Albert Milsom had gone missing, and he was seen with Henry Fowle, and he knew that Milsom's brother-in-law, Henry Miller, to have a toy lantern, which I guess was possibly like the collecting of the Pop Funkos or something at the time. The detective then set up a trap in a candy store, as you do, with the lantern, where Henry reportedly said, so that's where I left my lantern. Not really, but I like it. It turned out that Fip Milsom and Fowler were working together traveling with the circus, and Fowler was the strong man. He's strong like bull. They were captured in Bath, with Milsom giving up, but the strong man living up to his name and fighting until he was clubbed into submission. True to form, Milsom sang like a boyd, while Fowler denied everything. Milsom, of course, blamed the actual murder on Fowler, and that he only robbed Smith. They went on trial in the Old Bailey where Fowler, clearly upset over Milsom's confession, jumped to the dock and began choking him. Police pulled Fowler off Milsom, saving his life for now, as they were sentenced to hang. Now, they were feared that Fowler would again attack Milsom at the hanging, so they decided to get a third between them, and Fowler did not act, and the three men were hanged without incident. The next part is from True Crime Library. Now, honestly, I spend so much time on the books and the other research that I got lazy. Instead of combining notes, I'm just, just going to read off the different ones because it's my podcast. So True Crime Library says that it actually was the gardener's job to set the do-it-yourself home alarm system of booby traps before he left for the day. And it was a series of a trap wire connected to a detonator. And the... Victim was said to live on the property in a lodge house near the main home. When Weber found the employer's body, he noticed the home was broken into and saw Smith's beaten body ugh, sitting in a puddle of blood on the floor, bound with a gag in his mouth. That poor old dude. The killers had apparently left in a hurry as they left behind a gold watch and other jewelry. Footprints were found under the kitchen window along with a brass tobacco tin and neither Weber or Smith were smokers. Smith's alarm system had been dismantled, pointing to the fact they were dealing with pros. Albert Milsom was 33, and Henry Fowler was 31, and like I said, he was described as a giant of a man possessing enormous strength. This states that the lantern owner was located by placing it outside Milsom's door, where the 15-year-old younger brother-in-law said it was his. And then they were able to say, oh, so, you know, that links you to Milsom, and ha-ha. The murdering mooks were then found in Bath, where they were working for a traveling waxworks called the Chamber of Horrors. And, of course, they get cotted, and we're May 1896 at the Old Bailey trial. Milsom said this, Fowler killed him. I begged and prayed him to save the old man's life, and I ran away. And Fowler ran after me and fetched me back, and Fowler went and done the robbery. Fowler responded, My pal's a dirty dog. He had half the money, and he put his foot on the old man's neck until he was sure he was dead. Then he went upstairs, him first, and we found the old man's trousers with the keys of the safe in the pocket. Nice guys. We are on to our last one. The murder of Julia Martha Thomas. According to the Irish Post, 
Kate Webster, an Irish woman, carried out one of the most notorious and savage murders of the 19th century England when she killed and dismembered her employer, Julia Martha Thomas. Born Catherine Lawler in Killeen near Enniscorthy, Wexford, young Kate gained a reputation for theft from an early age. At 15, she was arrested for larceny, and larceny is going to be a big thing with her. She continued to steal to obtain enough money for a ticket to London, which she purchased in 1867. She then took the last name Webster as a part of a story that she made up that she was the widow of a sailor that died along with her children. She went to prison in 1868 for larceny, one of those drinking games you can play now, and she was in there for four years. 1872. She was released and took a job as a maid where she would rent a room in a boarding house, steal the items therein, sell them, and go on to the next home. May 1875. 18 months in Wandsworth Prison for larceny. And she was then caught for the same crime shortly after her release, being jailed again February 1877. She managed to get a job as a maid for twice-widowed Julia Martha Thomas in Richmond, January 29, 1879. Her new employer was not impressed with her working abilities, as she told her she was no longer needed after February 28. So not very long. I guess her, her probationary period didn't work out. Kate asked if she could stay until March 2nd, which Julia agreed to. That morning, before Julia left for church, they argued... I do that too before church. I don't want to go. Then took up where they left off when she got back from services. Kate said she threw Julia down the stairs before choking her, but sensationalism got the best of the already lurid story and said she used an axe first. All accounts agree that she dismembered the body ugh, and boiled off the flesh. She says, I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. She said in a confession, I also used the meat saw and the carving knife to cut the body up with. I just never understand the whole dismemberment and then going beyond that, like Dahmer and ugh. I prepared the laundry copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity. And as soon as I had succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. I opened the stomach with the carving knife and burned up as much of the parts as I could. Kate then packed everything except the head and one foot into a bag, throwing it into the Thames. Yikes. I guess it was just too much to carry. The foot was discarded in a garbage bin in Twickenham, which sounds oddly musical to me. I discarded Governor's foot in a rubbish bin in Twickenham, I did. Told you, can't do accents. Detective Inspector David Bolton who examined the case in 2010, said, A few days after the murder, some boys said that Kate Webster had offered them some food and said, Here you go, lads. I've got some good pig's lard, which you can have for free. The boys ate two bowls of lard, which was unfortunately Mrs. Thomas. Kate then took on Julia's identity, as she was not reported as missing, real popular gal, and although the bag with some of her remains were found the day after being tossed, they were unable to be connected to Julia. For the next two weeks, Webster lived in her victim's home, dressed in her clothes, and dealt with the tradesman as Mrs. Thomas. Two days after the murder, dressed in one of Mrs. Thomas's dresses, she visited her former neighbors, the Porters, in Hammersmith. She claimed she was now Mrs. Thomas, alas widowed, and wanted to help selling her home in Richmond that was left to her by her aunt. The ruse ended on March 18th, 
When delivery men came to collect furniture, Webster had agreed to sell. They told a suspicious neighbor they were working for Mrs. Thomas and pointed out Webster. The neighbor alerted the police and Webster fled. One of the reasons Mrs. Thomas sacked Webster was due to her spending more time in the pub than at work. The row on the night of the murder stemmed from Webster returning home late from a visit to her illegitimate five-year-old son as she had stopped in the pub on the way home. She reportedly visited a pub while waiting for Mrs. Thomas's remains to boil in the laundry copper and again treated herself to a drink after pawning her employer's gold bridge work for six shillings. After visiting the porter, she went to the pub with Henry Porter and his son Robert, excusing herself to dispose of the bag with Mrs. Thomas's remains. Webster also agreed to sell Mrs. Thomas's furniture to a publican, not sure what that is, named John Church, who she went drinking with several times during the course of their business. Webster fled to Ireland with her son, but was arrested March 29th at her uncle's farm in Killeen. July 2nd at the Old Bailey was the beginning of her trial, and the swirl around it had reached a state of intense excitement and agitation. The future king of Sweden showed up on the fourth day, y'all. Kate, slash the second, Julia Thomas, affirmed her innocence by blaming Church and Porter, but the jury saw through this and took one hour to find her guilty, guilty, guilty. She then tried the Preggers card, but was quickly found out when she was examined to have no baby. Upon being sentenced to death, Kate then admitted she was involved, but the father of her son was the mastermind, leading her into a life of crime. On the evening of her execution, July 28th, she finally admitted she acted alone to her attorney and a priest. This makes me want to insert a dad joke about an attorney, a priest, and a confessed murderer going to the old bailey to find a monkey with a waffle iron, but I haven't fully formed the joke yet. Her nationality, they say, may have countered against her as Irish immigrants were seen as being criminals and the stereotype of the drunk Irishman was widespread. The police's tendency to target the poorest communities and overrepresentation of Irish in prison, prisons, again reinforcing those negative stereotypes. But it also didn't help that she is a horrible pus person who murdered another human being and seemed to use people as she pleased. Webster was hanged on July 28th 1879 at Wandsworth Prison, only the second person executed there. Of the 135 people hanged at Wandsworth, including the lights of Lord Ha Ha <laughs> and John George Ha, Webster was the only woman. As the prison only had 90 graves, they eventually decided to reuse the plots, except for Webster's. The only woman executed and buried at Wandsworth was allowed to rest alone. This little bit that we're going to wind up with is from my London News about the same story and it's titled the Victoria the Victorian murder victim whose skull was found in David Attenborough's Richmond Garden. I had to look up who he was although I do like to say his last name like this Attenborough. He worked at I want to say PBS but it's BBC the equivalent of PBS in Britain Towns. We'll go on in a second to find out how it happened. But the more, the other information I learned from this article was the this situation, the story was dubbed the Barnes Mystery in Richmond Murder, found out that Julia Martin Martha Thomas was in her early 50s, we knew twice widowed, and despite not being particularly wealthy, decided to hire Kate Webster. She eventually had trouble keeping servants. 
Webster quickly became increasingly resentful of her boss, to the point that Mrs. Thomas tried to persuade friends to stay with her as she didn't like to be alone with Webster. And like we said, it was arranged that Webster would leave Mrs. Thomas's service on 28th February 1879. According to Webster's eventual confession, Mrs. Thomas came in and went upstairs. I went after her. We had an argument, which ripened into a quarrel, and at the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall, and I became agitated at what occurred. Lost all control of myself, and to prevent her screaming and getting me in trouble, I caught her by the throat, and in the struggle she was choked, and I threw her to the floor. And as we've mentioned previously, Webster dismembered her body with a carving knife, chopping off her head and flesh with a razor, boiled it, and burnt the bones in the fireplace. She looks like the dude from American Horror Story, Evan Peters, so look that up. And look at a picture of her because it's uncanny. This story says that it was never proven that Julia's fat was offered to neighborhood children as lard. Julia's head wouldn't fit into the bag with the other body parts, so it was said to have been buried under a local pub stables, the Hole in the Wall, on Park Road in Richmond. And this is where David Attenborough comes in. It wasn't until 2010 that Mrs. Thomas's skull was found on land that David Attenborough had bought in an attempt to redevelop the now derelict Richmond pub. He had already bought a house between the cottage that the murder took place in and the pub, so he had the house between those places. During the excavation work, workmen found the skull buried under the foundation, and after detailed analysis, the coroner concluded it was Julia's. Isn't that crazy? See, forensics works, dude. Can't get away with it. No perfect murder. Wow. That was a lot to cover. Thanks for hanging with me. If there are any cases that you know that are in my proverbial wheelhouse, just let us know. Queen V is now ushering me back into the lab with offers of salty fish head goodness. So Igor departs, my fellow lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.